Hey soccer friends, I just want to give a shout out to our partner, Team Player. They are changing the game on how you find the perfect soccer team for your player. Parents, this means no more endless social media scrolling to find information on teams. With Team Player, everything you need to know is just a few clicks away. It's simple, straightforward, and lets you find the best coach and team for your player without any of the usual headaches. And coaches, we all know how tough it can be to get your team noticed, but when you subscribe to one of Team Player's team plans, you instantly get access to set up an online team profile that allows you to reach more potential players and showcase what your team is all about. It's super easy and lets players and parents see why your team could be the right fit for them. And if you sign up using the promo code PITCH, you can try any team plan free for one month. So whether you're managing a team or searching for one, come on over to www.teamplayer.us. That is T-E-A-M-P-L-A-Y-R dot U-S. And come give Team Player a look. Hello and welcome back to Chat by the Pitch. This is Ian Babcock, your host. This week is part two with Coach Raymond Martinez, the Director of Coaches for Rayos FC. Now, if you guys listened to part one, we kind of just left off in the conversation. We are now picking it up in part two. I hope you guys will enjoy this episode as much as I have enjoyed talking to Coach Raymond. So let's start this chat and head to the pitch. Right. I, I think that that's key because I, as a parent, and when I did coach, when we had our finances, we shared it with our families, like what every penny went towards, what yeah, we were buying. Mm-hmm. And I think clubs kind of don't share that information. Like if you really wanted to, if you're a 501c3, a nonprofit of any type, um, you can actually go online and pull their finances for whatever year they they submit. They have to submit every so many years. And they're supposed to submit every year, but only so many years are available. And you can go on and see what all the staff members are being paid, what um where they're spending their money on field rentals or coaching fees or activities and it blows my mind that all these clubs i don't care what size you are aren't transparent enough because i first i'm giving you in my eyes a lot of money absolutely to develop my player and I know that if we're in a different part of the world, we'd be penny, paying pennies on the dollars compared to here. Absolutely. And as parents, that development with a purpose, I like how you put that and you put a big emphasis on that, not just um, building players, but even the UPSL, what is the purpose of it? Um, and that, that kind of makes me think of what you guys are trying to do is you guys truly do care about the development. The purpose is to develop players for, the next level now as a the parent we are the facilitators of our children's dreams it's like our job is to help them but they have to put the work in and yeah. and it's like what's the purpose it's to help our kids feed yep. into their dreams trying to give them the option 
Um, if we if we break it down, like I always look at it as the stat of kids that put the grind in versus kids that put a partial grind in make it to the professional level. Well, that's 0. 0.50, what is it? 0.05% of players in the United States playing soccer will make it to the pro level. Right. Well, when you actually take that number and break it down to the out of a thousand kids that you may ha- are taking a pool from, from, how many of them going home every single day and grinding day in and day out for hours without right. the team? What number percentage of those kids are actually making into the pro and how do you prep the players for that mindset because you talked about getting them ready for college college is a different beast um if you aren't performing you're gonna go get benched if you're if you're not getting the grades you get benched if you're not putting the effort in you're getting benched um and you may be performing but you're not putting the effort in the coach will see it and how do you how do you guys plan on building that mentality do you guys have you guys have your that you created the program you created but do you guys do go beyond like twice a day training sessions or optional extra training sessions or is it just something that you try to make them and hold them accountable on their own because Mm -hmm. they need to be doing it on their own versus in a group setting right yeah so i think there's a some of that stuff's going to be based on kind of go on a team to team basis. Right. Um, But I think based on the, the coach's expectations for that team, uh, you, you try to measure all of it, right. How's the kid doing for sure. For sure. I could tell you that I am up to date and get my, my players progress reports. I asked for them. I want to see how they're doing in school for several reasons, right? Um, number one is I've I've had a lot of these players since you know they were nine and ten years old, so I do care. I do care about how they perform, what type of young men they are out off the pitch. I care. It's important to me. So I want to know how they're doing in the classroom. How are they doing in their social environment? Are they taking care of themselves in their social environment? Um, You know, their relationships with their families. uh, All that stuff's important to me. Now, every player is different. Some of them are, you know, a lot quieter than others. Some of them will tell you what color underwear they're wearing. I mean, (laughs) they're very, very transparent. So uh, we try to have those relationships with our players but the educational piece is very important to us simply because it's just that the, their grades and stuff is a translation of their work ethic, right? You built right. these, you built these players to, to perform a certain way in the practice sessions to perform a certain way when they're on the pitch. Um, so can you have them and build a mindset where they translate that competitiveness over to the classroom? Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. You can. So why, why would we not do that as coaches? Right. Why would we not push that same competitiveness over from football to the classroom? You know, because ultimately if, if you can convince them that they're competing against the guy next to him in the classroom, that they can outperform that guy, 
that and they're doing it because of their competitive nature, well then that's okay. Like they don't have to want to make good grades because um you know they're bookworms. They can make good grades because they want to beat out the next guy. That's okay. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's okay. They, if they want to be the the valedictorian, you know, if that's the goal, well, then fantastic. Like, let, what are we doing to support that idea, right? It's okay for them to want to be first. I think that also ref will reflect over one day into the workforce, right? It's okay for them to want to be the plant manager. It's okay for them to want to be the operations manager. It's okay for them to want to be an engineer. It's okay for them to want to be a project manager. It's okay. We should encourage it. They should be leaders in the community. Because ultimately, one day football is going to be over. Even if they make it to a professional level, one day football will end. So right. when they enter that, early. yeah, one day when they enter that professional workforce, like, who are they going to be? You know, we want them to be leaders. We want them to be the future of our community. You know, and I'm speaking specifically for Fort Worth, right? But we want them to be leaders. We want them to, to have standards and expectations. And, and it's okay. It's okay. So um, I, I, I think from a general perspective, it's hard to say. It's hard to measure that from a coaching standpoint. Um, I'm going to say it's a much different approach at a U13. I mean, a, at a 2013 age group level, you know, when they're 8, 9, and 10 years old. Um, but when they start to turn into young men, um, U14, U15, it's okay for us to have these expectations for them and hold them accountable. It's okay. Um, because ultimately the rest of their life, they're going to, as every year that goes by, they're taking on more and more responsibilities. Some of them being financial, some of them being family-based, some of them being educational-based, uh, some of them being work. So like every year after 16 years old, their level of responsibility that they have to absorb will go up slightly, right? Um, so it's okay for us to have these expectations on them, but absolutely we're, we're influencing and pushing these uh, moral beliefs, um, these goals onto them during the training sessions, after the training sessions, after matches. Uh, I try to tie, I try to tie in you know, the game result into life lessons and how, um, you know, some of that stuff can tie into the way they are in life. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. I think I think all good coaches are, are able to translate stuff over and tie in life lessons into what they're doing on the pitch, man. Uh, I absolutely think so. And, I mean, there's several coaches that uh, that I've met with and spoke to um, that I can easily tell you that for sure they share that philosophy and tying in life lessons into what we do on the pitch. I am editing right now Soccer Dave's interview, and he talks very heavily about not just creating great soccer players, but creating great individuals for, sure. for life. Mm -hmm. And it makes me think, you talked about the U, U10, U9, U11 players, you're in the golden years of knowledge for them, of molding and shaping these players, not just technically speaking, but as people. And from the sounds of it, you take a huge investment into your players, not just as a coach, but 
off the pitch too um, to develop a program for your players so they have a chance for college and whatever they may want. Um, So what do you, what do you view the golden years as? Like I have my opinion what the golden years are for training purposes. What is your opinion? Because I feel like there's an age and I just want to see where you're at compared to my answer, because it's not a trick question. We all have an opinion of this and it's everyone sees it differently. yeah, I think that that's a little bit of a there's a two two sided question. Um, I think for technic for development and stuff like that, as far as football, uh, the golden years are going to be from eight till about eleven, uh, where technical development really needs to be at a very very high emphasis. Um, we use one v one is very important during those years to get them comfortable. Uh, on the ball and um, build confidence in their ability to win 1v1 scenarios. Um, Creativity is going to be super important during those years. Allow them to make mistakes. Um, You know, having those conversations with them when they do make those mistakes, like they need to be able to forget about it immediately and let it go and move on because there's nothing they can do to take that mistake back. Um, Like, Let's try to move forward. Um, so starting to build that mental uh, toughness and that technical, uh, technically correct athlete is going to be critical from the ages about eight to about 11. Um, they need to have all the tools necessary to play football at a high level. Um, I think from U11 to about U13 is where you start to teach them structurally about the game. So formations, uh, defensive tactics, attacking tactics start to play a much stronger role in what what their shape and organization should look like during those years. By the time you're hitting U15, U16, U17, they should be very proficient and have high levels of IQ. Um, in football tactics, understanding positional responsibilities and how those change and flow during a match because their positional responsibilities are changing during the match because my players are encouraged to play in space, right? So a center, uh, my center attacking mid, my number 10 may end up out wide as a number 11 um, because of an overlapping run or something like that. They need to understand the, how their positional responsibility changed during that rotation. Um, so 16 years old, they need to be very proficient. And at, at 16, you know, it starts to become about performance. Um, so the mistakes that we're allowed to make at 10, uh, 11 years old, they're no longer allowed to make at 16. There's a different level of expectation. So why should that expectation make? You'll hear different coaches have different opinions on this. But the reality of it is, to me, is if I don't have a level of expectation when they're 16, 17, to not make the same mistakes when they were U11, then I'm failing that player because when they hit that collegiate level, that collegiate coach is going to expect them not to make that mistake. Right. Because they'll have three other players on the bench that don't make that mistake. So the player can no longer be allowed to make the mistake that they were making at 
U10, U9, U11. Now the expectation is more about performance and consistency. Can they perform consistently every single time that they step on the pitch? So many college coaches that I've talked to also talk about how are they warming up? What does their body posture look like? What does their body posture look like when they're warming up? Are they lazy when they're warming up? Are they encouraging their teammates during a match? Or when they mess up, do they drop their head and start walking back? Or are they tracking back to try to get that ball back? You know, these are critical pieces of, of development, right? Is what are we doing to not allow that consistently, not only in the training sessions, but during the matches? So my players immediately know that if they drop their head during a training session because they made a mistake or they lost the ball, they need to get it back immediately. I don't care if that means he's the number nine striker and he has to track back 100 yards into our goal area to get the ball back. He has to get it back. So building that mindset at U15, U16 is critical because I don't think there's enough coaches that hold players accountable um, for those types of, uh, of of mental blocks, because ultimately it's a mental block, right? So right. What, it is. Yeah, you'll see you'll see coaches that allow it at U10, U11, U13. They'll allow that player to stop playing because he lost the ball. So when they hit U15, U16, now you're trying to convince a young man of a mistake that he's making and he and try to change it. Well, it's a lot more right. difficult to influence and uh, and change that idea of a young man than it is a child. So can we yes. correct it? Can we correct it in their youth so that you don't have to deal with it when they're U16, U17? Um, so yeah, I, I don't know if I, I definitely got in the weeds there, but <laughs> no, no, you, you did great. You actually, as I was writing down my questions, you were answering my questions as I was writing them down. So I'm very happy uh, <laughs> I have to cycle back to it. No, that's the thing. I think you're, you're onto something there. I think expectations, I always say the golden years is under you 13 for like right. te personal technical development, because by the time they hit puberty and coming out of puberty and hitting the lovely age of ninth grade, and I don't care what gender you are, hormones are raging and whatever it Absolutely. may be, and the complexity of school and social dynamics yeah. are there. If you have that consistency with, foot, with football and learning to use what you have on the pitch, yeah. off the pitch, or having the outlet of football to be there you're constant and you know you're doing and do well with it it helps you develop sure. coping skills and skills in life to move beyond right. and then when you hit that u13 age where they think they know u14 age where they think they know everything right. and they're going into ninth grade time frame um you you they already have the foot skills to do what they need to do to move right. on to the, the the more mental anguish side of the game Right. I feel because if you can take that touch, first touch without looking and you know it's at your foot while you're scanning, right? it's amazing how much more confidence they are going at 10 years old, even watching 10 year olds, 10 year olds learning to take that touch and not even look at their foot anymore right. so they can figure out 
where they're passing to before right. they even take the ball. But now if something shift and changed, they can pass the ball along. I, right. I think you hit it right on the head. I know you talked about positions. That's that that's something that I personally, as a parent, you talked about it when the roles change of what they're doing. He might move out to the 11 from the 10, the, the number 10. I don't think enough coaches here in the United States, especially at a young age, emphasize that. If you have a left back that is dribbling up the field, who's dropping back to cover that left back in a 9v9 match? Mm -hmm. Or is everyone just moving up with that that defender that has the ball because he had space and he's going to take advantage or she has space and taking advantage of it because you don't want that player just to pass the ball because, oh, my role is defense. I just pass the ball back up the line, up the side or through the middle, whatever it may be. And depending on what type of soccer you're playing, if you're playing long ball or possession, and you you even see it at the MLS level, is that that defender will get the ball, and immediately they'll either pass it to their right or pass it to their left, depending on who's open, but they aren't eating that 30 yards of space in front of them. Right. Me as a parent, it's like, how do I explain to my my nine-year-old right now, that's Mm -hmm. not what you do. Right you eat that space up and let them come in and make them change. You don't change your dynamics. And I think that's missing. Mm -hmm. I did have a question. I wrote it down from way back and you were talking about purpose and, um, and not the, the burden of the, on the parents of the players, the financial side, do you guys do, and I'm sorry for everyone listening to this, I'm bouncing about 30, 40 minutes back right now. Um, do you guys have scholarships and financing available for players to help them along? Do you guys have sponsors that come in and help players? Or is it, I know with smaller clubs, it's very hard to get any of that done because you are well, small. It, it's, uh, so yeah, let's talk about that a little bit, right? So Rayos FC as a whole, as a whole, um, tailors specifically to the low-income community. So we're offering high-level play, uh, high-level coaching for about a quarter of the cost of what you would pay anywhere else. So some of that is done because our club fee is a tenth of what it would be for FC Dallas or any other large club, right? Right. Um, so with that said, uh, it allows us to to provide a, a, an environment where low-income families uh, have an opportunity to put their kids in and play at a high level and compete at a high level, but yet not break the bank. So that's something that that philosophy has is, is been very important from us for us since the beginning. Um, and it'll always remain very important to us, uh, regardless of what direction we decide to go in in the future, right? Um, so is there scholarships? Absolutely, there's scholarships. Um, those scholarships are another thing that's very, how can I say, very driven on on player performance and participation. Um, is the player consistent? He can't miss a practice. Is the parent consistent? They can't miss a practice. Um, 
is the player performing well, um, then he can be, you know, eligible for a scholarship. A lot of that stuff would be determined by the coach. Um, but absolutely, that's something that is present and out there uh, for our players. And, and believe it or not, as far as like uh, team budgeting and stuff like that, it's not that hard to try to uh, generate revenue for, for a team. Uh, you can run raffles and stuff like that, sell candy. I mean, some of this stuff is very elementary, right? But uh, ultimately, it provides revenue. So uh, if I got a 55-inch TV and a Yeti cooler and we raffle off, raffle off tickets and and uh, and sell a bunch of tickets for 10 bucks a pop and generate, you know, $4,000, well, then that goes into the team and, and it may pay off our fees for Classic. Um, right. So... So generating revenue is uh, is something that should be driven uh, by the team um, and by the coaches' support. Um, but ultimately, it's the parents that have to go out there, you know, boots on the ground and sell those raffle tickets. Um, we have, and I'm going to mention this because it's pretty spectacular, right? We have one of those raffles at the beginning of the season in July when our kids sign contracts and we push out the budget. Um, we have one of those raffles. Um, I have a parent that every single year, um, she sold about 95, she sold enough raffle tickets to cover 90% of her club fees, about 95% of her club fees. So she's left with like a hundred bucks to pay for the entire year. So she sold like 200 and something raffle tickets. It was incredible, man. But long story short, like the effort that she put into it pays off. Right. So right. I think, I think <laughs> that there couldn't be a better uh, model for what expectations are for parents and players. Right. You put, you put the time and the effort in, you're going to get the result. So, so uh, I agree so, with you there. All, yeah, all, the, so, all the clubs do the raffle. I mean, I made my son go door to door yeah. in my neighborhood. Absolutely. In our neighborhood, yeah. because and sell the raffle tickets. And a lot of people were very welcoming of it and very supportive sure. of it. And like, oh, I understand your struggle. We're doing, a, I'm doing a donate even more than just a raffle ticket to your, yeah. to your cause. And, but at the same time, it's like, I don't think he realized what he did. He paid for, sure. he paid for an eighth of his soccer fees sure. by doing that. And as a parent, I'm proud of him because it was 110 degrees those days. And, right. But he did it. And like you said, this family was able to yeah. pay for nine majority of the 90%, 95%. I don't remember what you said exactly right. of their fees. And I think that's what I think clubs are missing. And I I have I always keep a running list of uh um fundraising ideas in my phone yeah. because I feel like any given moment things can change and you might need to go raise sure. five grand to go play some crazy tournament and reduce the cost for all the families across the board. Yeah. And as, as far as, uh, club sponsors, team sponsors, uh, we're always looking for those. Um, so we also allow the parents to, we provide <clears throat> information for the club, uh, tax IDs and stuff like that to the parent, um, to allow the opportunity for them to also look for scholarships for their players. So any, any donation, whether it's 20 bucks or $200 that they're able to collect from small businesses, 
um, will go towards that player. Um, so it goes to the club and it's filtered back into the player um, as a scholarship. So again, it's another way that they can reduce their club fees, their tournament fees, all that stuff. As you know, travel can get quite expensive. Um, so we have to try to be creative and find wise, find ways to cover those costs. Um, so yeah, we're constantly doing that. Um, so obviously budgets vary uh, quite a bit from team to team. Uh, based right. on travel and stuff like that. So some some teams only play uh, in local uh, leagues and local tournaments. So their budgets are a lot smaller than uh, my team's budget, for example. Um, so yeah, they may fundraise a lot less uh, and that's okay because their team doesn't require as much uh, financial backing. Um, but my team does travel. So, you know, we try to provide as many of those opportunities as possible. And, you know, just like, just like I have relationships with businesses and people that I know, those parents probably also have relationships with businesses and people that they know. So they can get scholarships directly for their own son, which is great. Like, why not? You know, why not offer that opportunity for that parent to be able to get a donation from a friend that they know from school or something like that, that has a, a landscaping business. And, and that's, that's okay. Like, why should right. we should encourage those scenarios? It's thinking out thinking outside the box, right? Where normally I think the parent probably would never think of that. But uh, once you do an orientation with them, give them the letter and say, "Hey, here's here's the nonprofit information. These people can use it as a tax write off uh, for, and if you can get a, a scholarship for your kid, like even better. So, um, right. you'd be surprised. A lot of these people are more than happy to get the tax write off. So, yes. Yes, yeah. especially small businesses. Yes, um, I find it very fascinating how this all works out. I mean, you guys have a rough, you said 10 coaches. So do you guys have meetings together and talk about players or, or struggles that you guys are having so you guys can keep, you said you guys talk constantly so you guys can make yes. sure everyone's being, yeah, every so player's needs are being met, so to speak. Sure. Do you guys do you guys do the same thing for the coaches so the coaches' needs are being met? Because I know that no, I'm not I don't like talking about the big clubs just because I feel like I'm always knocking them. But I feel like a lot of time coaches are just a number and they have so many players and and then with the smaller clubs, you guys are one of so one of ten coaches, one of fifteen coaches, and it's easier to extend an olive branch or yeah yeah extend an arm of help to another coach within your organization do you guys find it to be more easy to create that more Absolutely. organic culture of unity and coming across as one giving each other grief when you guys don't agree with something and just having a good time like having humor and trying to push each other to the next level so to speak so you yes, guys are pushing yes. each other to go get your d license and your c license and eventually your dna and whatever it may be or going to go to the coaching seminars and getting more knowledge of this beautiful game of how to interact with players or absolutely so yeah i think i think you're you hit the nail on the head as far as uh because we're a smaller club it does allow this the allow us the opportunity to be a little bit more tight-knit right we typically have uh, quarterly meetings where we get together and have a face-to-face -to -face, um, 
that's difficult to do, I guess, during signing season. Um, so uh, May, June, July is pretty hectic, but uh, we try to get together quarterly and, and have a face-to-face -face and kind of lay out the, the plan for the year um, and kind of give out expectations. Um, because we're all like Fort Worth based, a lot of us will train together or see each other passing through during uh, the training sessions. So, you know, during any given week, I may interact with every single coach in the club. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. We vent to each other, talk about financial issues, talk about technical issues, talk about training issues. Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I feel like we have enough transparency to to keep that open door policy. And anybody that has any issue, absolutely, we're here to support you. Um, we have a coach that's based out of Irving. Um, and his 2012 team practices in Irving. Um, but if he calls me and says he, he needs coverage for for Thursday, I'll make the trip to Irving because it's important, right? It's important that we're putting our best foot forward um, for the players. The players don't need to know that there's a circumstance that doesn't allow their coach to get there. They just need to know they got practice that day. Right. <laughs> so the rest of it needs to be irrelevant to them. Um, so, yeah, we try to keep that environment. We try to piggyback off each other and make sure that we're lifting each other up and not putting each other down. Um, obviously, there's there are issues that come up, right? None of us are perfect, and we're all still learning and trying to be better. Um, so there can be issues that come up uh, as far as performance and stuff like that where we need to try to uh, create a scenario or or build a training scenario where we can try to uh, better educate the coach so that he's a better resource for the club and a better resource for the players. Um, so yeah, those scenarios come up. Absolutely. Um, especially you'll see that when uh, kids are aging up, right. When you're moving from 77 to 99 to 11 B 11 um, you'll see the, there's a transition in tactics and um positional responsibilities and organization and sometimes that requires uh if the coach doesn't have 11 be 11 experience well then that requires some additional attention to you know some um some tactical training right um so yeah the, that does require you know us to kind of stay on top of things i am the director of coaching so um I always try to make sure that I'm available to the coaches. Um, sometimes the stuff that uh, I have to address isn't necessarily the most comfortable conversations um, with the coaches, um, but uh, they're necessary, right? I mean, it's no different than having to address a player uh, about something that he's doing wrong. It's no different than having to address a parent for yelling too much on the sideline. Like, oh, come on. Uh, that never happens. <laughs> I'm not one of those parents by any means. Never, never, never. <laughs> exactly. So uh, they're not comfortable conversations, right? But they're necessary. Um, so as long as everybody can keep an open mind, uh, myself included, um, and try to make sure that we're putting our best foot forward and, and trying to uh, 
make good quality decisions about what we're doing, then typically everything works out fine. So, um, so yeah, I definitely say that having a smaller club dynamic makes it much easier. I can't imagine having 70 coaches like DKSC and trying to touch base with everybody weekly. Um, but, uh, that's a whole nother story, but, uh, but, you know, as we grow, um, and and try to bring in new coaches. I hope that organically the environment kind of stays the same. Um, but I, I I'm well aware that it's going to be more difficult to manage with more with more personnel to manage. It's it's more difficult to manage. So that's that's a given. I mean, I I can see that now. With coaching, do you guys leverage technology to help the coaches to have practice plans drawn up? Or if practice needs to be indoor, do you guys use like a camera systems, recording games? I, I, I find I'm a very much a tech junkie. And yeah. when it comes to pro- the cool things, I like to look at them and understand them and how they work. And uh, as a parent, uh, having our players sit, my player sit down with his coach and his team to go over game film. I find it to be helpful because my son did not realize recently what he was doing in games. So the next game that they had a recording of, I brought it up and like, but this is what you're doing. Why? He has, I mean, I'm just watching the game. I'm enjoying the game. I'm enjoying the moment. I go, but you have to be conscious. And I go, I'm watching you scan. So you know where everyone's at. Your head's on the swivel like it's supposed to be. But why are you not in the proper position because while coach wants me to be over i go bud you literally could take three steps and you're next to the next person your next defender the field's 9v9 it's not like it's a 7v7 field where you can cheat that much where it's 15 yards narrower it is 15 yards wider and you need to be spatially aware and next game he literally we had the conversation beforehand and sure enough he was able to instead of instead of creeping I call it 10, 10, what is it? About 10 yards from him. He creeped over to more of where he needs to be. And because that's where his coach told him to be. He, he like, I go, I don't want to go against your, what your coach is saying, but where does your coach want you to be? He goes, you're right. He goes, I need to be more in this position. And I'm like, okay, then pay attention to it. Stop watching watching the game. You're not playing on seven feet, seven field where you can, run it in 10 steps 15 steps back into position you're running now a good a good 20 yards to get back into position and by that point in time you're beat do you guys have moments like that with your players to have game film to talk about that stuff or do you guys uh, so I, w- I would say we don't have kind of a club philosophy on that i would say that it's kind of uh, coach by coach right I will say that the majority of the more competitive teams, which, like I said, it's about a handful of teams, all run a camera system during uh, matches. Uh, I can speak for myself a little bit. So for sure, for sure, uh, I would say when they were 14, 15, I started utilizing um, technology and leveraging technology and coming up with uh, tactical schemes um, coming up with set plays and stuff like that, um, using uh, uh, different 
web-based platforms. And I would also show them match film from pro teams like uh, Man City, Barca, you know, on why we want to create those uh, tactical strategies because this is how it should work. Um, so I did that in the earlier phases and then VO and all that stuff started to get really popular. Um, so I do run a VO. So every single match that we play, um, win, lose, or draw, uh, at this point, like I said, my players, this may not be um, the best idea for, uh, you know, U16 and below, but for U16 and above, I, I feel like we can hold our players a little bit more accountable. Um, so uh, every single match that we play, I've, I spend hours breaking down the film. Uh, if we lose, I, I basically become obsessed with watching that match. <laughs> because I want to understand why we lost and how we can prevent that from happening, happening again. Um, so I'll, I'll break the film down, write down moments, uh, timestamps within the film. Um, and then I'll go back and I'll screen record my, my critique. So I go back in uh, using my computer and a software that I downloaded and I'll screen record my critique. I try to keep all those films, all those critiques down to 15 minutes or less. And then I'll create, I'll upload that film to YouTube um, where I have a private account and then I'll send the players the link. So they'll go through and I'll address. Uh, sometimes I'll break that down to offense, defense, or if I'm addressing the center mids a lot, then I'll make a defense, uh, a film just for the center mids. Um, and then I'll send that out via link to my center mids and they'll watch their own film. So the majority of the critique is going to be on what they did wrong. I'm not even going to lie to you. I'm being fully transparent. Uh, even if we won five to zero, I still, I still feel that there's things that we can do better. Um, You're complacent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, we have to try to improve every single match, regardless of the score. So I'll go through, analyze the film, break down those moments in the film. I'll screen record myself, I'll upload it to YouTube, send that YouTube link out to my team. They'll go through, they'll watch every single moment in the film that I'm critiquing. Um, and then uh, I'll ask for feedback, right? Like, what could you have done better? Uh, what can we do to keep this from happening again? Can we uh, can we build a training session around this? Um, so all those questions need to be asked. Otherwise, there's there's no point. Um, if there's been, what you'll find is you're not only finding technical problems during those uh, those match breakdowns. You're also finding mental breakdowns during those uh, technical breakdowns. Right. So you're you're finding where a kid mentally may have a mental block and his ball you catch him ball watching. Yes. So he, he may allow a player to get in behind them into space and then the ball, next thing you know, that ball ends up with that player and you know creates a counter and now they score the goal. Why? Yep. Because my player had a mental block, right? So pointing out those mental blocks uh, is important um, because ultimately that's how you build a more consistent player. If you can build a player that that plays more consistently and is focused for 
for the 90 minutes of the match, uh, well, then ultimately it's it's going to help the team overall. Uh, so if they're having mental blocks, you know, you need to point that stuff out as well. Uh, if there's positive stuff, like I'm very happy with the way we built up. I'm very happy we played through the middle third, through the final third. I include those on those breakdowns um, so that they can see what they did well and how I want us to repeat that scenario over and over again. Um, so I'll definitely point that out on those recordings. And and honestly, that's the best way for me to communicate with my players um, because they can all watch it on their own time. I don't have to schedule a Zoom and hope that nine of them make it on the Zoom. Um, they can all watch the YouTube film on their own accord. Um, and then we can go over it during the next training session that we have scheduled. So um, that's worked really well for me. Um, I couldn't tell you how other coaches and stuff do it. Um, but that's, you know, that's just something that I created because it was very convenient from the fact that you're sending them a link and they can all watch it when they're ready to watch it. So now, do, you, um, do you get a lot of feedback for that then from your players or comments or concerns or questions? Cause that's a telltale sign. They actually watched it. I mean, you're only asking 15 minutes. not like you're asking yeah, so the, for a full the 90 way, minutes. Okay. So the way I can tell that they viewed, uh, the recording, would be that I can look at the amount of views on the YouTube video and I have 19 <laughs> on my roster. So if I have 20 views, that means they all watched it. Gotcha. So <laughs> that's how I can tell that they all watched it. Um, I probably have some players that click on it and watch five minutes and get off of it. Um, but I think my mindset behind that would be just like everything else, Ian, I think the, the player has to take the reins and want to be better. So you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. Yep. Um, so I have to be very conscious of the fact that some of my players are are probably not um, uh, mentally strong enough or just don't want it bad enough to, to carry themselves to the next level. So uh, like I said, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. I can't make them sit there and watch the film and truly understand uh, what happened, they have to want to try to break down the scenario and understand what, what's happening there so that they can either do it better next time or, you know, try to keep it from happening again. Um, so it, it's important that they take the reins there. So I definitely take the approach of, you know, not enforcing it or not making it mandatory. I kind of want to see who's watching it because I think those players in the end are going to stand out to you um, physically on the pitch as well, because you can see that they're taking the extra time to educate themselves and watch their own film and make themselves better. So you'll see those players continue to progress where the other ones may not. Um, right. So we talk about development and progression of players. Uh, man, there's so many different ways that that happens. Um, and on it, I feel blessed that I've been able to experience it because uh, I develop players from, you know, nine, 10 years old to uh, they're young men now, which they're U17. So you got to see all the different phases of development, you know, the technical phase, that, that pubescent stage of, of puberty where they turn into buttheads. Um, and, and then giraffe, that, as I was told. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You can't walk around. Well, I think right. it was one that talked about that. They turn into giraffes walking around the soccer field because they can't stand yeah. their feet. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then you see them as young men now. 
Right. So young men is it's it's different. You're not talking to children anymore. You're not talking to boys. Um, you're talking about uh, young men that that have the capability to uh, to make some some uh, grown up decisions, right? Um, so what you'll also find in developing players from a young age is that when they're young, you have the ability to influence what they're doing a lot. You can, yes. you can heavily influence the way they train. You can heavily influence what they're doing off the pitch. You can heavily influence the way they play. Um, but as they get older, your influence on them gets less and less because their, their attention and their priorities are changing. Um, they're... So with their attention and priorities changing, this goes to a developmental question. When do you start... Right specializing these players because I feel watching kids develop and talking to parents that have older kids than mine um, mm. they see that their attention to certain things go away and so the player naturally starts to specialize by themselves but as a coach do you have the philosophy of every player needs to know every position until U15 or do you feel like some players just naturally fall into this position or I ask because I have a younger player I have a sure. I have a player that's young and I think specialization and having that mental talking about that mental understanding of the game really sure. dictates how these players um, grow to understand the game if they're only looking at it from the perspective of I'm a a center mid or I'm a striker or I'm a left or right back, whatever the position may be, yeah. or I'm the left back wing. Yeah. I think that's, yeah, I think that's crazy, <laughs> but, but yeah, there's a couple of different ways to answer the question. Right. Um, I definitely, from a coaching standpoint, I think that the, the players should understand every single role on the pitch and how the responsibilities change. Um, I think part of that is because of the philosophy and the methodology that I use to coach my players. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the second part of it is I want them to understand uh, the responsibility and the every single position because I want them to understand the difference in how they suffer. So if we don't have the ball, my center back is suffering a lot more than my than my center striker per se, right? Yes. My number my number nine. He's sitting there chilling, eating a sandwich, and my center back is heading every single long ball. You know, they're having to press, they're having to shift. So so the idea of suffering, I want you to know what it's like to suffer as a defensive player. Because you need to know how the way you play when you're an attacking player affects the defensive, your, you know, your defensive team, your defensive right. squad. I need you to understand how they suffer when you're not doing a good job on top. Right. So from a simplistic standpoint, you know, football is played. It's a simple game. It's you score goals to win and you don't get scored on. It's as simple as that. You score to win and you don't get scored on. But the methodology for me is I need those kids, every single one of them to know how everybody is suffering uh, differently on the pitch, right? Like 
everybody needs to know every single position and their responsibilities. Now, as far as tactically and technically, how, how do you pick where a player should play? Well, absolutely. I think natural, uh, natural traits, natural attributes that they have, natural skill um, weighs heavily into what position they'll end up on. Um, it, it's difficult at U17 to say that a center back is going to transition to a number nine striker. Is it impossible? No, no, absolutely it's not impossible. Um, and are there coaches that are willing to put the time and effort in to make that happen? Happen? Absolutely. I totally get that. Um, but I think it's difficult to do. So I think as a coach, for me, what I've done um, is I take, I take the kid's natural uh, skill set and technically kind of where he's at from a skill set and say, okay, he benefits the team most in this role right? He benefits, the, the team can benefit from him most in this role. Um, so then you kind of try to play off. Now there's for sure, for sure, I think there's utility players out there that, and there's always going to be utility players out there, right? You're talking about a kid that can play in almost any role. He can play as a number 11. He can play as a 10, an eight, a six. He can play as a center back. He can play as a three and a four. I mean, everywhere on the pitch, this kid has a high level of IQ. He has a high level of performance. He has a high level of intensity. And he could just go anywhere, right? Does he have some technical deficiencies? Yeah, he probably does. But overall, um, anywhere you put him on the pitch, he can contribute. He can contribute to the team and help you get the result. Right. Um, where there's other players that based on skill set, size, speed, IQ, you can't really put them somewhere else because it can be detrimental to the team, right? So <clears throat> I do think those things exist, uh, but that doesn't mean that we didn't, uh, at an early stage during the development phase, train every single player on the responsibilities of every single team. If you're up for, if, if, uh, if I'm winning 5-0, uh, in a, in a match when there were U14, U15, doesn't mean I didn't move my number nine to play as a center back. I absolutely did. Um, that's an easy call for me because I want them to know what it's like to have that responsibility at the back. Um, so, you, yeah, I mean, that's just you, kind of my philosophy, right? So you're saying U14. So when would you say specialization starts then? Because in my mind, specialization doesn't really start until they go more 11 v 11, maybe a year into 11 v 11, because their profile might change once they hit the full size field. I, I'm going from watching kids. I have no coaching background yes. on this. It is just being analytical. That's all I'm saying. It's like. I think specialization can, uh, it's hard to put a, um, an age on it. I think it's difficult because here's one thing I'm very conscious of, Ian. I have some players right now that I've used them from the moment that they were U10 as a as an attacking center mid, right? I've mm -hmm. used them as a 10. I've, I've put them either in the 8 or the 10 role. So, But I'm very conscious of the fact that this kid is probably going to become a striker. He's probably going to become a number 9. Well, he's probably going to become a seven or an 11. So 
I'm very conscious of the fact that the perception of another coach and based on that team roster, he may be your more useful as a 10. I mean, as a, as a striker, as a number nine right. or, a 10 or, or an 11 or a seven. And that's okay. Um, so I think it's difficult to put a timestamp on, on specialization. The kid has always played for me, right? For me, right. for me, he's always going to play in that role because he's mastered that responsibility and, and he's able to perform consistently in that role. Um, but I'm very conscious of the fact that, I mean, I think Pulisic's a great example of that. Uh, uh, I've talked to, you know, I was lucky enough to be selected to, to participate in an ID camp uh, where some of these national players are selected. I got selected as a coach to coach, coach that camp. Um, so I talked to the U.S. national team co coach that actually selected Pulisic out of one of these ID camps. So he told me that he always played as a center mid, but it wasn't until he got selected and pushed up to the national level and then international level that he actually moved over to, to play as a winger, right, a seven or an 11. So I'm very conscious of the fact that their skill set uh, will allow them to play in different roles, but... I think it's based on roster needs. Like where does a kid uh, contribute the most to that particular roster? Um, right. And can he be adaptive, right? Can the player be adaptive? Is his IQ high enough to immediately take on another responsibility and understand what those responsibilities to that new position are going to be? I'll give you another example. I have a kid that's played as a winger for me since he was 10. Amazing player, incredible player, but I'm very aware that he has a very high level of uh, of defensive traits. So at, a, at an even higher level, I feel he would be a better fullback because he has the ability to attack and break lines, but he also has this incredible ability to win the ball in the 1v1 scenario. So he's, in a sense, he's my first line of defense, right? He right. wins a lot of balls very high through the press. But for another team at a higher level, he may be the perfect fullback, a guy that can go up the pitch, break lines, win all his 1v1s, and then play a perfect pass into the penalty area so someone else can shoot and score. Right. So it's just dependent on roster needs. Um, so I don't know if there's a specific age where, you know, you can say a kid specializes um, because ultimately I think it's based on roster needs and what that coach needs that player to do. I have I have players that come try out for me and they have, may have played a number nine their entire role, their entire career at youth at U16, U17 now. But I'm like, you have some fantastic traits to be a great center back. You know, and sometimes those players are willing to transition to play on a quality team for a quality coach. And sometimes they're not. And that's okay. That's okay. Like if you want to stay at number nine. Bro, if you want to stay a number nine, I get it, bro. Be a number nine. You know, if that's what you want to do, you want to be up top, score goals, fantastic. But if you want to play with a quality team and play with a quality coach, you know, here your responsibility will be different. You'll be a you'll be a center back for us, and I'll train you to do that. Right. And the reality of it is, uh, from my perspective, there's a better chance that you can get recruited collegiately as a center back than a striker. 
because you share more qualities as a as a center back than you do as a striker. So uh, you know that's that's an interesting topic, right? Like, yeah, it's based on coach's perspective and coach's needs and roster needs and stuff like that. And I don't know if there's, you know, specializing. Man, man, I don't know. It's it's difficult to say. You know, when a player actually starts to specialize, because I think it'll it'll change even if they go pro or or go into college. It can change. Um, I always talk about FC Dallas. They're they're notorious for taking a left forward wing or right mm-hmm. wing and transitioning them down to a left or a right back. Yeah, yeah, and, absolutely. And because you want that speed. And they have the the foot skills and they have the passing ability and hearing coaches talk about it. I mean, I always talk about Colleen Acosta. That's one of my favorite examples. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you listen to podcasts, there's um, Greg Giles uh, podcast. I can't think of it right now. It's a soccer specialist. And he asked parents to give them two years to develop players and that he just had to have a player fill that role. And as soon as he found the player, and train that player to understand that role that they're moving into. They could he could transfer that young lady out of that role and into the role that she naturally has talent for. But he goes on to say, like, by her playing defense and not playing her midfield role, um, he is allowing her to. Um, she learned a new tr- skill set, so she became even more more defensive, more effective on, on defense. And when she had to switch back and it's like, I think sometimes inconvenience for a moment might be a blessing in disguise later on. And I, I I know, I I think he said that she went on to go play college and at a higher level and he contributes that her family and her giving him time to move her to a, a better role, that role and holding that position for him because it, train the brain to think differently and i feel like parents are so set and players are so set at all ages not just younger yeah. ones yeah so yeah i think i was watching uh i was watching a live on a coach and i can't remember what coach it was at this point uh a live stream on a coach and he was kind of talking about that how actually it was joiner football which is a youtube channel which i think is a great but I was watching uh, one of his lives and he was talking about how less and less players are wanting to take defensive responsibilities up. So there's less and, you know, fewer and fewer defenders out there. And, and we're, we're not just talking about defenders. Ian. We're talking about defenders that play with passion, not because they're there as a result of their lack of technical ability. Right. We're talking about real defenders, real center backs, real fullbacks that have this passion for defending, right? We're seeing fewer and fewer of those players. And and I can totally agree with that because it's a massive responsibility to be a center back. And a lot of kids don't, a lot of kids don't have the guts to hold it down back there. So, um, it's not a pretty job by any means. You're not going to end up on any highlight reels. But man, <laughs> is, but man, is it necessary? Yeah. Man, is it necessary? So it's it's really pretty sad to hear and to kind of see that that's a trend, right? That you're seeing less and less defensive players 
So I would encourage parents to say, if your kids, you know, natural traits and coach is putting them at center back, man, encourage them to be the best center back out there. Encourage them to be the best fullback out there. Encourage them to be the best uh, center defensive mid out there because, man, it's necessary. And I can guarantee you that it's harder for a college coach to find a good center back than it is for a college coach to find a good striker because there's fewer of them out there. I, I think, I think, I think the part of the problem is the profile they want. I mean, I don't think my son will ever be able to be a, a true center back because he won't break the six foot mark. He might mm-hmm. break the six foot mark, but most center backs are tall now. They aren't, yeah. they aren't five ten. Um, they are six, two, six, three, six, six. They are. Right. And we lose those kids to, to basketball or a wide receiver in fo- American football. And it's funny that people don't realize like, Hey, look, if you go learn this role right now, it's like people say, go learn to be a goalie. You'll have a scholar, scholar, a college scholarship. If you put the effort into it. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you. 100%. As far as the physical profile of the player important and how it can uh, actually help him with the position that he's playing. But man, Ian, that's difficult to say too, man, because I've had the same center back for a long time um, since they were 10. And he's, you know, maybe a, a quarter of an inch over 5'5". Five, five. And he's a little <laughs> guy, right? And we're we're talking about U17. So these kids have grown into their, you know, adult bodies at this point. Right. The reality of him having another growth spur is not very likely. But it is... Very, very difficult to beat him in a 1v1. And he's not scared to go up and challenge for every single ball in the air. Right. So timing, execution, uh, overall performance in the position that you're responsible for is critical. Does he have a disadvantage in his size? Absolutely. But there is all the, you know, the different different parts of the game, like timing, his timing is fantastic. His 1v1 is fantastic. His speed to recover is fantastic. So it, it allows us to play at a high level, even with an undersized center back. Um, right. But, but yeah, I, I agree with you. You know, the physical profile is important um, to the player. So, yeah, you do have to take that stuff. Into- so not to eat up too much more time so my my favorite two questions to ask everyone is because you did play in high school and Mm -hmm. did play when you're younger and now you're coaching who are your greatest influence is on you as a player and now who's your greatest influence on you as a coach uh i think as a player man that's a difficult question you know when i was younger when i was young in high school and stuff uh and playing with um, with Texas Lightning. I think my my favorite players back then was Pirlo from Italy and and Thierry Henry, which is from France, of course. So I think those are my two favorite players. And obviously uh Henry because he was crazy fast, right? Crazy control with the ball. Just a striker that could do everything by himself, such a clinical finisher. 
and then Pirlo, because he was a smaller guy that had this amazing ability to distribute. So his ability to play the ball in the air, and as as teenagers say, drop dimes, just incredible, right? His distribution is just amazing. And it was a very beautiful type of football that Pirlo played. Um, so I was a big fan of his up until he retired and went on to coaching Juventus. Um, so I followed him all the way through that journey. Um, but definitely one of my favorite players, for sure, of all time that influenced the way I played, right? I played more as a winger and was very aggressive going forward um, and had some speed. So I think that's why Thierry was really intriguing to me. Um, but Pirlo, man, just an incredible player that had a, this amazing ability to distribute and put the ball where, wherever he wanted to. Um, and those are two guys that I really admired. In the modern game, uh, man, I was a big fan of Benzema. A lot of a lot of people didn't think he was a, you know, one of the best strikers in the world. But if you ask me, the way Vinny compliments Benzema, man, I was just a pairing of of one of the great pairings of all time, right? Um, but uh, yeah, Benzema is definitely one of my favorite players now. Um, and then, man, I'm just a Man City fan overall, man. I just that whole Man City, the way they play. It's just amazing football to watch, and I have all uh, all other games recorded, and I may watch them twice just to try to get all the information I can out of those matches. Yeah, um, man, Man City is a good a good club to follow. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think they have uh, one of the greatest coaches of all time, for sure. Um, so what the way that they play is is just amazing to me. Um, and I have a tendency to like smaller players because I'm a smaller guy. So I'm 5'9". Uh, on a good day, I'm 5'9". So, you know, <laughs> players like Alvarez, uh, that's a striker from Man City. Um, every time he steps foot on the pitch, whether he's coming off the bench or he's a starting player, just the amount of influence that he has on that game is incredible. Just you know, he's probably 5'10 at the most and just an incredible player. You know, he just, his production rate is crazy too. So if Holland isn't doing the job, you know, Alvarez is doing the job. And, you know, I just like those smaller guys that still have a big impact on the game because I do feel like so many coaches are lean so much towards size nowadays. Um so, uh, you know, I'm I'm a fan of those smaller guys that are still playing at the highest levels. I think it depends on the role they play, but that's right. another story for another day. Yeah, um, yeah. And now as a coach, who has been the influence on you? Oh, man, for sure, Pep. You know, Pep Guardiola is probably my biggest influence. I think I've studied and, and taken a lot of his online courses and try to understand his methodology and, and the model that he uses to play football. I think what's uh, I think he's a genius overall. Uh, he uses a lot of uh, Johan Cruyff's methodologies, right, as far as possession football. Yes. Uh, but I think Pep's uh, intelligent enough and and modern enough to where he understands that it's adaptive. Uh, the game is adaptive and constantly changing. Um, so I think we have to be. Uh, that way as well. If we want to continue to coach at a high level, 
the type of coaching, the type of influence, the type of tactics that we use cannot be set in stone. They have to be, uh, we have to be adaptive and we have to understand that possession football is not the only football. Um, we have to be able to adapt to the opponent that we're playing and, and try to, you know, undo, um, undo their defensive tactics. Uh, so part of that will require us to maybe play long sometimes and be direct and then slow the game down and keep possession and then play long and then play direct and then overload one side. So it, it's, it's constantly flowing. And I think that's one of the be most beautiful parts of, of football is that it's constantly moving and changing and it's never stagnant. Right. It's, it's, this. uh, it's this constant flow of, of defensive changes, attacking changes. And, and if you're not able to keep up, they'll break you down. Right. So um, I think that's part of the beauty of the game is the it's constantly flowing. And I think we also have to be developing players that are able to adapt to that, that they, they can constantly create solutions to the match on their own in live time during the match. Right. So not necessarily wait for the coach to say, y'all need to change your formation, but I'm look. I've tried to create players that can adapt to the match and say, you know what, I'm going to attack this space because this is where they're weak. Um, and it may change our formation or influence our formation, but it's okay because the player is trying to create a solution to a problem. So are we creating players that are creating, are we developing players that are creating solutions to the problems? Or are we creating players that we have to create the solution for? You know, that, right. I think it's a great question to ask ourselves as coaches. Hey, everyone. I hope you guys enjoyed part two with Coach Raymond. With Rayos FC. This club is small but mighty. My son has played them several times like I've said previously, and it's amazing how much you come across team after team and play them over and over sometimes in tournaments or league play. And it's a matter of us taking the time to see what these clubs are doing from the sideline, how the coach is behaving and how the antics of the players are and what's acceptable and what's not. And it's just taking those moments and enjoying them watching these other teams that you play and listening to what Raymond said about playing with a purpose, what he talks about with college prep that are doing everything they have, they're doing with a meaning with meaning and purpose. And I hope you guys see that and understand that. Hey everyone. If you guys have enjoyed this podcast, have enjoyed what I've been trying to do, the messages that I'm putting out there, please give me some ratings, some stars on all the podcast sites that you listen to this on. Give me a review, share this, share with others. The more I can make this grow, the more I can continue doing this. I'm really trying to make a difference in our soccer community. So I hope you guys have enjoyed all this. And until next time, I'll see you at the pitch.